Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for jumping on board. And this is going to be an interesting show because you're about to hear an interview I did from a quarter century ago with a true baseball trailblazer. And this has never been heard before. When I was just out of college, I went to the Lake of the Ozarks in the heart of Missouri to the house of Robert Blattner. Robert, widely known as Buddy Blattner, had been retired for 18 years after broadcasting baseball for a quarter century. You heard me say earlier, Blattner was a baseball trailblazer. Well, what do I mean? Well, you see, in 1953, Buddy Blattner, along with Hall of Fame pitcher Dizzy Dean, became the very first broadcasters for television's Game of the Week on ABC. If that's all Buddy Blattner did, that'd be plenty. But by the age of 16, he became the world table tennis champion. I'm guessing not even Houston's own table tennis savant, Daryl Morey, could beat Blattner. By age 22, Blattner was playing second base in the majors for the St. Louis Cardinals, where he had grown up. But he spent five years in the majors playing for the Cards, Giants, and Phillies. His career divided into two parts because, like many in his generation, he spent three years in the service during World War II. From what I could find, he didn't see any combat. And as part of his service, he joined an all-star team of professionals who entertained troops on the Pacific Islands among a number of things. I'll get more into his career shortly, but let me explain while you're the first to hear this interview. You see, after I interviewed him for the NBC station in Columbia, Missouri, I spent a couple of months calling around the country, trying to find audio and video of his work, especially with the game of the week. Just, I had no luck though. Before I could figure out a way to work around all that, I'd taken my first full-time job at the NBC in Little Rock, Arkansas, left town, took the tapes with me, and they've been with me ever since on three-quarter-inch deck tape that nobody has anymore. But I dubbed it off for you guys so we could hear this and so I could hear it again. Buddy Blattner passed away 10 years ago at the age of 89, so he's been gone. But for the next few minutes, I'm going to bring him back a little bit, and we'll hear a couple of great stories about his life. I started my conversation with him by asking about the sport he first came to love. He said the guys in the neighborhood got him interested. To keep us off the street and out of the pool halls, they got us interested in, uh, in, in table tennis. Three years later, I played for the United States team in Europe and uh, won the world's championship. That was in 1936, 900 years ago. And then 1937, we repeated. And then I turned professional in baseball in, uh, in 1938. And Robert, I did not have uh, what you would call a distinguished major league career. I had an outstanding minor league career, and then I spent, when I reached the major leagues in 1942, I immediately went in the service, and uh, I sparked the Cardinals to a pennant that year by going in the service. And then three and a half years later, I returned, and the skills had diminished a little bit. Uh, Still uh, uh, reasonably young, I think I was only about 26 years old, but just enough to... uh, did not put you in the category of those that were really good. It's heartening now to know that uh, by today's standards, though, I would be about a million and a half dollar a year ball player. As it was, we were very happy to make 15000 What Buddy didn't mention was that he was signed to play baseball by the legendary Branch Rickey from a tryout camp. Yeah, the same guy that signed Jackie Robinson, signed Buddy Blattner. Rickey told him, quote, Judas Priest, son, you have the greatest coordination of any young man I've ever seen. After Blattner's baseball career was over with, 
he became one of the first ball players ever to go from the field to the broadcast booth. Today, that's the norm, but back then, it was all brand new. The man who hired him was one of the true characters of the game, the owner of the St. Louis Browns, Bill Vec. If you don't know the Vec stories, please read about them, but let me give you a couple, though. Let's see. He had Grandstand Manager's Day, Bill did. When you enter the ballpark, fans got placards telling the manager whether the team should steal a base, bunt, or change pitchers. With manager Zach Taylor sitting back in a rocking chair, the fans voted on what to do in the game, and the Browns won 5-3 to three over the Philadelphia Athletics. True story. What else? Beck hired the first clown to perform at a big league game. He added the names to the back of the uniforms and started the baseball pregame radio shows. It was Vec's idea for Harry Carey to sing Take Me Out to the Ball Game during the seventh inning stretch. He brought a circus to perform between a doubleheader and had the infamous disco demolition night when he had fans bring disco records to Comiskey Field and then blew them up on the field that night. It didn't go well. Again, check the video. He also... Signed the first black ball player to play in the American League, Larry Doby, and signed baseball's first black front office executive. So trailblazer by any stretch of the imagination, Bill Veck. And I asked Blattner about Veck and the famous incident Blattner was there for when Veck signed three foot six inch Eddie Goodell to play baseball for the Browns. Bill Veck was the owner at that time. Bill Veck was one of the most intriguing, the most fascinating men I've ever met. Extremely bright. As you know, he uh, was sort of anti-establishment, although he was really establishment in his dress code, in his demeanor, in his mode of operation. Bill Veck liked to be known as the guy on the third bar stool of the neighborhood tavern that told great stories and would buy a round of beers every night and get, drink anybody under the table. But he had the most active mind of any man I have ever known. He could read a book in a day. He had a photographic memory. And uh, he was very impulsive about things that uh, he wanted to do and uh, how baseball should be presented to the general public. And I recall I spent most every day with him. We were either at the ballpark at his home, or we were traveling somewhere trying to extol the virtues of the Browns and to uh, generate some interest uh, in the Browns uh, for the forthcoming season. We were coming from Heron, Illinois, one night after an appearance there. It was about uh, 2 o'clock in the morning because we always finished the appearance at uh, one of the, oh, the churches or whatever, and then Bill would go to the uh, most popular local pub, and then we'd have an audience there for a couple of hours. And we're driving home, and I'm doing the driving, and Bill's doing the relaxing and thinking, I guess. And he turned to me and he said, Bud, wouldn't it be great if the Browns, did, on, in the first inning, got their leadoff man on base? He said, wouldn't that be something? And I didn't think anything more about it. And about 45 minutes later, he said, you know, let's work on trying to get our leadoff man on one game sometime. Well, about a month later, I was summoned to his office, and here was this little character, barely high enough to see over his desk with a little squeaky voice, and he was introduced as Eddie Goodell. And Bill turned to me and he said, here is our new leadoff man. And 
I was sworn to secrecy. I know that on this Sunday that we played the Detroit Tigers and Eddie Goodell led off for the Browns. And I had to then say, now coming to bat for the Browns at three foot six is Eddie Goodell. I know that my loyal audience had, were saying one thing. Bud should get home earlier after the game on Saturday night. He should not go visiting uh, the various pubs. And uh, the umpire didn't believe it. And Zach Taylor, the manager, had to bring out the, uh, the signed contract. And it, it made the national news. And that was the first, my first objection to doing an event that created national commotion. What a crazy story. And by the way, Eddie Goodell came to the plate wearing the number one eighth on his back, as in one slash eighth. Yeah, true story. Now let's move ahead to 1953. I asked Buddy how he ended up as baseball's first voice with the game of the week. Actually, I was doing the, the St. Louis Browns game. They were sponsored by Falstaff Beer. Dizzy Dean worked for Falstaff Brewing Corporation. Falstaff then, uh, through very clever marketing, uh, conceived this idea of sponsoring baseball's Game of the Week. So they got a hold of Diz, who was under contract to them, and me, both former ball players, and of course he the marquee name, and uh, said that they were going to establish baseball's Game of the Week and uh, that we were going to do the broadcast. Well, it was, a, it was a great vehicle, uh, Robert, for the simple reason that uh, there were thousands upon thousands of very, very avid baseball fans who had never seen a major league game. We were able to supply that, and it became one of the most popular television shows in the country. And then, of course, working with Diz, Diz was not a Phi Beta Kappa, but he was not dull-minded either. Diz always stayed in character. He knew one thing, if you called and your name was Dizzy, you're not supposed to be exactly uh, according to Hoyle all the time. He played his character beautifully. If he wanted to sing the Wabash Cannonball during the most important part of the game, he did. If he just wanted to get up and leave, he left. He didn't care to really know all the names of the, of the players. He knew the pitchers. In fact, Diz didn't really care about baseball except pitching. And then he had a master's degree in both pockets when it came to that. But uh, I was there to put the pieces together as Diz left them falling on the table. But uh, he was the, the national name, very, very popular at the time. It was, it was a great experience for me. And uh, for the first seven years of baseball's Game of the Week, Diz and I worked together. As I said earlier, I had no luck finding Buddy Blattner calling the game of the week when I called all around the country some 25 years ago. And even now, I can't find anything on the internet. So my guess is it just doesn't exist. But I did find Blattner's Padna, as he liked to call himself, Dizzy Dean, uh, calling one of the games of the week with his more famous sidekick, Pee Wee Reese, a little bit more famous than Buddy Blattner was. He took over for Blattner after the first few years, this is Dizzy on the call and Pee Wee with the analysis. One out and Willie Mays the batter. Pee Wee, how many times have you seen that in the 20 years that you played baseball? Well, there's one of the few guys that I've ever seen do it with Mickey Mantle with the Yankees. And right. uh, to tell you the truth, he got the perfect pitch part. A curveball. Let up curveball. High. 
Yes, sir. Then a fastball, he could have very easily bunted that ball foul. One strike to count on Willie Mays. Here's the pitch. Swung on. There's a line drive in center field. It's going to be in there for a base hit. Here comes the runner trying to score the throw into the second baseman. And here comes Joe Antomatano across the plate for the first run of the ball game. And the Giants lead one to nothing. Yeah, that guy Willie Mays was a pretty good player, wasn't he? Uh, all right, next up. I asked Blattner what the impact was in the small towns around the country where people, as Buddy said, uh, some of them have never even seen a baseball game in their life on television. Some of them, of course, not even in person. Robert, it was, it was amazing. Uh, you know, we would hear from people from all over the country that would uh, be viewing the game. And, uh, and when we'd go to, uh, to California... Clark Gable would come up to us, and it was very, very unusual for him. He'd be with an entourage keeping him from the general public. He would play golf on a, on a Sunday. We're televising a Sunday game. They would stop at the end of nine holes, watch the game, and then finish their their golf game following that. It had a tremendous impact, and it was because of that. You were cognizant of it. At least I was. I don't think Diz gave a darn about it. But you have a grave responsibility then to possibly bring that game into their living rooms, into whatever section of the, uh, where they may be with the television set, to do a good, maybe even an educational job. Because they hadn't seen these people, and many of the times, these players, they didn't know their background. I think that we had to do vignettes along the line that actually said something about the background of these particular players, and then what they were doing, an open stance, a closed stance, how the mechanics of the game actually evolved. So it was something that we took great pride in, and I think that we succeeded. After hearing all that, I wondered if people changed their plans because the game was on, and this is how Buddy responded. I think their plans evolved around the game of the week. In other words, on Saturday, starting at, uh, at 12.30 or 1 o'clock, uh, we'll all assemble somewhere and, and watch the game. We found out that uh, whether it be taverns, or whether it be hotels, and the hotel lobbies and so forth, they would hold and serve cocktails maybe on, uh, on, on Saturday during the game. Or they would have a luncheon and uh, you would come and, uh, and you'd watch the game. It, it, it had a tremendous following because it was, it was novel. It was new, and uh, you had a Hall of Famer in, in, in the uh, television booth who was extremely popular, a character, a personality, which should, I think augmented uh, the, the, the popularity of the event. Now, besides the game of the week, Blattner also called the St. Louis Hawks NBA games for eight years, including Hall of Famer Bob Pettit helping them to the championship in 1958, their one and only championship. Here's Blattner calling the final seconds of Pettit and the Hawks after they had already lost Game 7 of the NBA Finals against the Celtics the year before. They finally win that championship. Heading toward the front court. He stops, turns, now has to pass. He does. Over to McCauley. McCauley in the front court. The ball game is over. The Hawks are world's champions. The Hawks are the world's champions. The Hawks win it 110-19. to The Hawks are the champions of the world. Oh, and this crowd is going wild. Everybody down on the court, they're grabbing Pettit. They're tearing him loose. 
They've got Doogie Martin up on their shoulders. Easy Ed McCauley being hugged. 10,000 fans in a frenzy now as the Hawks have won the world's championship. They've beaten the Celtics. The Hawks are the champions of the world. Boy, that makes you feel so doggone good. It chokes you up. What a wonderful moment there for the Hawks. And you could tell it meant a lot to Blattner, who, of course, grew up in St. Louis. It was his hometown. Really fun stuff right there. And as far as his baseball broadcasting career, it it continued on well after his time on the Game of the Week. He became the voice of the California Angels in their early years and then moved on to Kansas City to be the original voice of the Kansas City Royals. Then to uh, be able to broadcast the first base hit of George Brett. Things that you look back on in reflection. Uh, it, he was another young young boy then that we were hoping would make it at third base for the Royals. But now, as and he would come to my place and uh, we would talk about his contract and so forth. And he was he was shy about even asking for money, and there were so many people who were less blessed than he with talent who were making a heck of a lot more money than he was. And when you talk to George now, and you know. 3,000 hits afterwards and looming for the Hall of Fame. These were exciting and wonderful times. And you reach my age, Robert, your memories are just wonderful because that may be the only thing you have left. Now, what's interesting is Blattner's baseball broadcasting career began in 1950, the same year as Vin Scully. While Blattner retired 43 years ago, as you know, Vin just called it a career a little over a year ago. It puts the whole thing into perspective. In the last piece of our conversation, Blattner gets into the nuts and bolts of calling a baseball game. And from there, he led into this. Uh, and you know who gets brought up, of course. Of all the announcers that I have heard, and uh, I'm a good friend of his, Vince Scully produces a game better than anybody else. And I'll tell you why. Now the announcers have just reams of statistic at their fingertips. They're given that by the PR men. He has all these stats, but until they become meaningful, he will not use them. He will use them in a story that is meaningful. He doesn't say, coming to bat, here comes Robert, and uh, uh, he's hitting 345 with 15 doubles and triples, the next number of home runs and RBIs. He's hitting 372 in the daytime against 245 at night, and against Chicago, he's hitting 312 in 12 games, and against this pitcher, he has one hit in 12 times at bat. Scully won't do that. It may get down to the fifth inning, and you strike out. And Scully will say, you know, that that is the the 15th straight time that he's been retired by this particular pitcher, and they struck him out seven times. That becomes a little story. It's meaningful. And uh, he has that discipline to be able to do that. Fabulous stuff from Buddy Blattner, and I'm glad you guys could finally hear our conversation about 25 years later. I want to close out by telling you a story Buddy told me about Ted Williams once the cameras stopped rolling. I hope I remember this one correctly because it's been a while, of course, since I heard this story. As you know, Ted wasn't exactly known for his friendly demeanor with the fans. So one day, Buddy comes up to Ted and tells him about a kid in a small town who'd written him and wanted badly to meet Ted Williams. The kid wasn't able to walk. He couldn't use his legs. He was in the hospital and was not well at all. Buddy asked Ted to think about going to see this kid. So Ted says, now look, tell the kid I'll go see him, but only on one condition. You can't tell anybody about this. Nobody, you understand? 
I'm going to fly to see him. And if I see one member of the media, when I get to the airport, I'm getting back on the plane and I'm coming home. Now, of course, remember, Ted was a pilot, so he could fly his own plane. And he was a man of his honor. He goes to see this kid, spends a couple of hours with him. And as you can imagine, it just made the kid's day. His parents wrote Buddy a letter a while later. And this is what they said. They said, our, our son talked about it every day for the rest of his life. They would roll the ball to him on the floor uh, at the hospital. Uh, he had a little bat. He would swing at the ball and yell out Ted Williams' name every single time. Uh, just yeah, hearing back the story, it just brought tears to, to your eyes just hearing Buddy tell this story. And he promised not to tell the story during a broadcast, but he did and kept his promise to Ted. And honestly, I believe there's no more Ted Williams of a story than that. Wish the hell I was rolling the camera when Blattner told the story, but just just a great stuff. And I'll, I'll finish off with this. Buddy did a lot of good work for charity. His Buddy Fund raised millions supplying athletic equipment to the disabled and underprivileged children in the St. Louis area. Uh, that sounds like the perfect way to end uh, this podcast and the conversation about Buddy Blattner. And I'll leave you with Blattner interviewing Bob Pettit in the locker room after that Hawks championship. Well, tonight we saw, as you've heard the other players say, one of the greatest individual performances ever turned in by a man. That was Bob Pettit. And Big Bob, I'm so happy for you and my sincere congratulations to you. You really thrilled me with that exhibition. Thank you very much, buddy boy. It was a wonderful victory, and I, I'd just like to say that I think I'm playing with the greatest group of ball players that I've ever had the privilege of seeing, not only on the basketball court, but also as individuals. And it's a pleasure to play with them and to be associated with the Hawk organization. Well, Bob, i got to buy that. I second that because it has been a long time on the sports trail with me. And these last three years, this group of Hawks, it just kind of picked me up and has given me one of the biggest lifts in my life. Bob, what are the future plans now? Well, buddy, I'm going to leave uh, probably Monday morning to join a professional tour that's going to tour the country uh, playing. You know this uh, East-West All-Star yes. Tour that plays all over the country, played 22 games. And then, buddy boy, I'm going to have a week in Miami, and then I'm going home. Well, Bob... Uh, we wish you, as you know, all the luck in the world. We've been so fortunate to have a man of your caliber and talents here in St. Louis. And you know, all of us here love you and uh, have a real nice summer. Don't forget about us. Come on up and see us once in a while, will you? Thank you, buddy boy. Don't forget to follow Houston Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes, the Google Podcast app, or the Stitcher app. Give us a five-star review on iTunes when you get the chance and tell your friends about us. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.